0: Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll
1: be discussing Aziraphale and Crowley, or ineffable husbands, from Good Omens.
0: I'm Maddie, and I'm Kelsey.
1: omens. What an exciting, we're, we're into a limited series. It's our first non-movie.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because we've had a lot of thoughts about TV shows versus movies, but this this isn't really functioning the same way as I think some of the other TV shows we're going to cover in the future because as a limited series, sort of it's like a really long movie.
1: It is. And it was all made
0: before fans got a chance to, you know, weigh in. So who are our characters from uh, Good Omens that we're talking about today?
1: As I said, they are called Aziraphale and Crowley. They are uh, respectively an angel and a demon who are, I guess it's up for interpretation, but, you know, basically in love. That's why we're talking about them. And um, it takes place in this Good Omens series, which is about the apocalypse, basically. It's um, an angel and a demon who don't want the apocalypse to happen trying to stop it from going forward is the broad overview.
0: And we're just going to be looking at the uh, that limited series. Uh, Neither of us have read the book that it is based on. So we will not really be talking about the book.
1: (laughs) Right. And that book is written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. And obviously Terry Pratchett is no longer with us. So this um, limited series was adapted by Neil Gaiman himself uh
0: are you familiar very familiar with neil gaiman and terry pratchett or not overly i mean i'm
1: obviously aware of them because you know i exist in the world and people talk about them a lot (laughs) but (laughs) this might be the first thing i would have to do research but this might be the first thing of theirs that i've watched slash read and are you a fan of it i enjoy it very much particularly uh the delightful david Tennant and michael sheen who really bring their all to these characters. <laughs>
0: How about you? Um. So I similarly uh, am aware of <laughs> Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. One of my roommates from college is a huge Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett fan. So I have listened to her talk about their works quite a lot, but I haven't read any of their stuff. Uh, and I, I like Good Omens. I, I feel like it's a thing that, I should like more than I do though. Like I can see in a way that it should be checking boxes for me, but I, it, it reminds me a lot of hitchhikers, which I've read yeah. the first hitchhikers and there's things about it that I like, but I don't know. Something about it like doesn't grab me. It's like, it, it's, it is checking boxes. I don't know if it's the tone or what. <laughs> um, so I watched the first episode of good omens with that roommate over a year ago at this point. Cause of course, We're in COVID time, so everything with another person was over a year ago. Um, And I was like, it's fine. But I don't know that I would have finished it if we weren't watching it for the podcast. But I didn't dislike it. It's not like it took a huge portion of your time. Yes. And I think it's going to generate a pretty interesting discussion. So I'm very happy that we're including it in the pod as well.
1: Indeed. So to get into that, why we're talking about them at all... um, I guess we have to talk about why people ship these characters together. And interestingly, in this case, as has not always been the case, we have a lot of input from our creator, Neil Gaiman. He has been asked uh, every question you could ask about the characters, and he has answered most of them. (laughs) So we have his thoughts on all of these questions that we're asking. And to transition into just the general story of Aziraphale and Crowley, though we're not going to do a broad recap of the series, obviously. We have a quote from Neil talking about adapting the book into a limited series and figuring out how to frame the show in a way that was different from the book. And he wanted to kind of make it about Aziraphale and Crowley, who obviously you and I haven't read, so we don't know, but it are seemingly more side characters in the book and are very much the leads of the show. So Neil says, I needed extra material for them because there just wasn't enough in the book. I felt, well, why don't I essentially take the beats of a love story and see how that works? And I was very fortunate in having Michael and David understand that and let it happen. He clarifies, he uses all the beats of a love story for the show to make it purer and more fun, (laughs) which I would
0: agree happened. It's very fun. It's uh, very interesting because as we said at the top, right, they seem to be in love. And I think very you know not to show our our cards but i think neil is also saying that uh they're in love so what is in the show that shows us maybe that they're in love what is what do we what do we have in the the text of the show uh
1: well we have all
0: kinds of fun
1: little shippable moments uh with aziraphale and crowley it starts early the two of them meet in uh the garden of eden after aziraphale has basically helped uh Adam and Eve escape <laughs> inadvertently, yes. uh, and it starts to rain for the first time in history. And Aziraphale takes his wing and covers Crowley's head pretty adorably.
0: An angel and a demon, friends from the beginning of time. Right, and then um, we have a couple of other beats. I guess this is in the second episode. I think that we, I think that's right, German, where Aziraphale and Crowley are are trying to figure out what happened with the Antichrist, where where he is. Uh, and they go to a place where a company is having a paintball retreat as like a team building exercise. Something <laughs> terrible. Um, and Crowley gets, uh, or Ziraphel gets hit with a with a paintball, and and Watch his, his white suit, and his beautifully kept white suit. He's kept the coat clean for two hundred years. So. <laughs> Um, and Crowley miracles it away for him because if he yep. did it, he would always know the stain was there. Aziraphale
1: gets all pouty about the stain, and then Crowley, who tries not to miracle things because he's a demon and isn't really supposed to be doing that, of course, uh gives in to his complaints and takes care of it for him. Yes. <laughs> and while they're in the same location, the two of them get into an argument and uh Crowley ends up like pushing Aziraphale up against the wall and they're having this very close face-to-face argument and the, you know, tension is off the charts. And then, of course, somebody interrupts them and walks into the hallway. Very rude. Very Uh.
0: rude. (laughs) And then, so those are just a couple early beats. And then we get to the third episode Mm -hmm. in the series, which is really where they start to focus on Crowley and Aziraphale's relationship um there's basically the first what 30 minutes of that episode is just devoted to their time together throughout time yeah a montage of their lives together so we see them at different important points in history i think they're there with noah when he's putting together the ark Mm -hmm. um they're there with you know jesus after he gets uh crucified uh, yeah. They're there in that, England watching Shakespeare write his plays
1: and contributing.
0: Right. Uh, but before that, I think it's like medieval times. And you see uh, uh as dressed as a knight, a, you know, a beautiful paladin. And they're going, he's with some humans to, to face someone who's causing trouble. And it's a, a black knight and he lifts up his helmet and it's Crowley. And they <sighs> realize that they've just been canceling each other out. Yeah, one of them doing a
1: miracle here, the other working some sort of demon, you know, whatever you would call what a demon does. Um, Anti-miracles. Yeah, (laughs) anti-miracles. And they just cancel each other out.
0: Yeah. So they, at that point, start to realize that maybe they don't need to be doing quite as much work, I think, and just start slacking off a little bit. But when they're together... watching Shakespeare, they also, it's clear that they've started covering for each other. So if right. someone doesn't want to travel all the all the way up to Scotland, the other <laughs> one will go.
1: Or it's like, I'm already going to be in that neighborhood doing a miracle. So I guess I could do your anti-miracle while I'm there. Yeah. They've, it, they've cottoned on to the fact that uh, they basically are just cogs in in their own respective bureaucracies that are having very minimal effect on the world. (laughs) So whether they do miracles or not, it doesn't seem to really matter.
0: So we're seeing their friendship uh, or their relationship just generally blossom. And then you pointed out that when we get to our World War II scene, something seemingly pivotal happens between them.
1: Yeah. And I think, I can't remember exactly where, but I feel like I've heard Michael Sheen sort of acknowledge this as well. There's a scene where, it's World War Two, and Aziraphale is trying to like covertly take down some Nazis and things don't go well for him. He's on a mission in a church and um, Crowley has to show up and save him basically. And it, it's sort of hilarious because it's a demon walking into a church and like it's hurting his feet to walk on the hallowed ground. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he arranges things where the church ends up getting blown up, killing the Nazis, but Aziraphale and Crowley are okay. But Aziraphale had had all of these precious books there's nothing Aziraphale cares more about than books he runs a bookshop and he thinks that all of his books have have burned up in the explosion and of course Crowley has saved his bag of books for him and um you can sort of see on Aziraphale's face the moment of him like kind of it looks like he, in that moment falls in love with Crowley (laughs) it's like everything has changed because clearly you you know what's important to me that sort of moment um
0: it's quite lovely It is. Uh, We then jump forward to, I guess it's the 60s. It seems like it's the 60s. I think that's right. And I can't remember if it's like they're starting to realize that the end times are coming up or or what's the motivation for this. But Crowley essentially asks Aziraphale to bring him some holy water in case things go south and he needs to to end his own life. Um, And of course... Uh, initially, Aziraphale says, I'm definitely not going to do that. I don't want you to kill yourself.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> um, but he realizes that Crowley is going to do something extremely risky to get the, the holy water. And so he decides to, to give it to him in a thermos so he can avoid risking his life to acquire it. Um, and they have, a, again, a pretty interesting moment in the, the car when they're handing off that holy water. Where Crowley offers Aziraphale a ride home, and Aziraphale says, clearly with multiple meanings. Mm, Layered. You go too fast for me, Crowley.
1: Aw. It's
0: it's very sweet. You'll catch up, Aziraphale. (laughs) It's all very sweet. He's having a hard time coming around to his feelings.
1: Right. And I think it's in that same episode that they have what is basically like a Pretty traditional breakup. <laughs> they have a scene. It's this is in the present day. The apocalypse is happening, and Crowley's basically saying like, "We should just get out of here." <laughs> and you know,
0: it's he keeps new. he keeps suggesting that they should run away together to Alpha Centauri.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's quite it, that goes on for like multiple episodes. He just wants them to run yeah. away together, but uh, he's trying to convince Aziraphale that you know what matters is that the two of them are okay. And Azir Fail is not really on board with that yet. He's still trying to, you know, do his duty and avert the apocalypse, which are two separate things. Um, and they have a scene where he, they basically just like it is a traditional breakup as if they were dating.
0: Yes, they're <laughs> yelling at each other in the streets.
1: I think they're in a gazebo. <laughs> oh. And uh, basically, Aziraphale saying, I don't even care about you. And Crowley's like, obviously, that's a lie. And they split up. But Aziraphale, or Crowley, who has been wanting to run away to Alpha Centauri and now could just do it himself for some reason, can't bring himself to leave without Aziraphale. So he keeps showing up. They do have an argument in the streets later where he's like begging
0: him again to come away with him. And Aziraphale isn't ready to go. Yeah, that's the part where the, where the old man walks by and essentially is like, yeah, me and my partner used to have tiffs like that too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the show is very clear on the fact that the two of them are romantically linked. Yes. <laughs> Things transpire. It comes to pass that Aziraphale's bookshop basically burns down. And um, Crowley finds it that way and thinks that Aziraphale is dead. And he basically abandons all hope. He doesn't run away to Alpha Centauri. He goes to a bar and is going to just like drink himself to death until the apocalypse happens. (laughs) And then obviously Aziraphale is not dead. He's okay, but his body has been destroyed.
0: He got disincorporated.
1: Yeah. He appears. um, He like astral projects or whatever. And uh, Crowley is like... Gobsmacked <laughs> to see him alive again, um, and then we find that kind of are at our final battle scene with
0: yeah the uh, so the world is is really coming to an end. The Antichrist is there. The four horse people of the apocalypse. They are horse yada, people. Yada, yada. Well, I guess similarly to Zero Phil and Crowley, we'll get into it. They're horse beings. Horse beings. They're all beings. <laughs> I think it's good to other beings, yeah, horse beings of the apocalypse, um, and uh, they need to do something, right? Because things are going south pretty quickly, and and Azirthal threatens Crowley with the the worst, the worst <laughs> thing he can think of, the worst thing <laughs>
1: either of them can imagine. He says to Crowley, "Come up with something, or." I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> and Crowley comes up with something. It, it motivates sure <laughs> Necessity being the mother of invention.
0: So, uh, spoiler alert for Good Omens, they avert the apocalypse. It mm-hmm. doesn't happen. And both the angels and demons are really upset because both of their sides really wanted to have the war. And zero and yeah. Crowley are the two who, who don't, I think, because they enjoy each other and they enjoy earth as well yes they got a little too close to humanity I think Aziraphale is still having trouble coming around to the idea uh, that they're they're on their own side but Crowley uh, kind of reiterates that to them and uh, Crowley's car has gotten destroyed it, his beloved it really, car it really was on fire <laughs> <laughs> well he had to drive through hellfire to get to the uh, battle yeah um, so they're waiting for the bus to come and uh, Aziraphale is talking about going back to the bookshop and Crowley reminds him that it burned down. So he offers to let Aziraphale stay at his place. And uh, Aziraphale is like, I don't think my side would like that very much. And Crowley again reminds him they don't have sides anymore. They're on their own and they hmm. get on the bus. And it's, it's not super well captured, but it looks like um, Aziraphale starts to hold Crowley's hand. And apparently at a con, David Tennant confirmed that's what happened. So they held hands on the bus on the
1: way. They're such a back to cute little ship. I love these two. And then uh, to wrap things up, both of their sides are mad at them for how they've acted during the apocalypse and decide to punish them. And the way that the two of them escape this fate is that they go into each other's vessels so that when Crowley is going to be put into a bath of holy water. And Xerophel is put into like a column of hellfire. Right. Both of them are fine and the angels and the demons can't figure out why. And it's sort of just like, well, I guess they'll leave them alone now because they can't figure out how to punish them. They (laughs) become too uh, powerful seemingly. (laughs) Exactly. And um, then as they have been hinting at for the entire show, the two of them finally get to just go eat at the Ritz, which is all they've wanted to do this whole time. And yeah. uh, keen-eyed observer
0: Kelsey over here noticed that. Uh, I'm pretty sure about this is true. Uh, that when they're sitting at their table at the Ritz, uh, the camera first starts out kind of in a more of a wide, and then zooms into them. And in the wide shot, it looks like everyone else in the sort of room that they're in is a male female couple having like nice romantic lunches at the ritz as well That's what and you no do at have, the ritz apparently i don't know <laughs> never been <laughs> never been. but yeah those are sort of all the the beats of their relationship and i think you really can track their love story of course you know i think as a demon right crowley is much more willing to be emotional and feel his feelings and aziraphale is so duty-bound and he comes around though
1: yeah they they love each other it's clear <laughs> So uh, to get into what our creators are saying about all of this, I guess it's first of all, what are David Tennant and Michael Sheen saying? And seemingly everywhere they've talked about this, they kind of acknowledge that they're playing it like the two of them are romantically linked. With Michael Sheen says that is trying in every scene not to show Crowley that he's in love with him. And then David Tennant says, Crowley absolutely loves Aziraphale too. He hates that he loves him. (laughs) But that's sort of the dynamic that the two of them are going for. So that said, and we'll get into what Neil has said, if uh, it seems like they're in love and it looks like they're in love and and the actors say they're in love, what are we doing talking about this on our queer (laughs) bathing podcast? And I think that the nature of that comes through when we get into all of these Neil Gaiman quotes because to me this is kind of a conversation about the nature of canon and what can be canon and what counts as it and on our podcast called let the boys kiss do the characters have to kiss for them to canonically be together
0: right or do we need to rename this podcast let the boys hold hands and then mm. we say oh they did and they did it, and it's they great did it. <laughs> <else>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what does neil have to say about all of this
0: So we have a we have a good number of quotes from Neil Gaiman sort of talking about this and and thinking about this question of what is the nature of Aziraphale and Crowley's relationship. And we've we've broken it into three kind of like main points, I guess, in terms of what he says canon is, he says canonically, which
1: is to say, using the text in the book, you don't get any description of Crowley's sex life. The only thing the book says is angels are sexless unless they specifically make an effort. You can infer, and more to the point you can imagine, and lots of people have chosen, not unreasonably, to ship him with a fail. but you are still making stuff up. It could be making stuff up that happens between paragraphs, or making stuff up that isn't mentioned at all, but it's still making stuff up, which is the fun of fanfiction, and part of the tradition of fanfiction, as is, I'm afraid, grumbling at people who do not see that your ship is the only true ship, and choose to ship anyone else with anyone else. If anyone decides that the relationships in their fanfiction are the only true fanfiction, it seems to me that they're missing the point. The point is fanfiction exists so that you can imagine, enjoy, and fill in the gaps. The point is that you can change things and have fun with them, and the stories are absolutely true, for you. If I were to pronounce on things that are not explicitly stated in the book, I still wouldn't be telling you if Crowley was canonically gay. I would be telling you what I think, because it's not canon unless it's in the book. It won't be TV canon unless it's on the screen.
0: So, that last quote in particular, I think, is really interesting and something we want to emphasize, right? Which is, he's saying, even I can't tell you what's canon outside of what is on the page. So, yes, I am co author of the book, but the author of the TV show. And if I didn't put it into the TV show, even if after the fact I say XYZ doesn't matter, not canon, he's like, we're all on equal footing. Yeah. <laughs> um, he is a strong death of the author supporter. <laughs> right. Um, which I think is, you know, I think we talked a little bit about this before we, we started recording, of course. And I think that's interesting because people change too, right? So you could written, have written the book with one mindset and then later on been like, uh, I've changed my mind. But that doesn't change what you wrote in 1991 or whenever the book was originally published. Um so it's an interesting attitude, though, for an author to have, and it maybe contrasts with some other authors' opinions, which we may get into on later. <laughs> some specific
1: authors' <laughs> opinions that we will shortly be talking about. Yes, um, but it also is interesting because I think that there is a desire among some parts of the fandom, and and every fandom really, that there is someone somewhere who is the ultimate arbiter of the truth, right? And if you can't go to the writer of the book and the writer of the television show and say, what is the truth about these characters and get an answer, then it sort of leaves this open question of how do we decide what is the answer? Does that mean that canon can be a bunch of different things or does it mean canon is literally just the words on the page? That's what Neil's saying. But it's sort of like a, you know, the words on the page can be interpreted in many different ways, can't they? Yeah. It's an interesting question. So then there's also we have there are a couple of different Neil quotes and we'll we've funneled them into different categories. So here's another one where on multiple yeah. occasions he's been asked to comment specifically about Aziraphale and Crowley and basically like, you know, what's the right. deal with these two?
0: And, <laughs> and I think and- maybe we actually do want to preface this with the conversation we're going to get into next, which is like his unwillingness to say, post, you know, the the writing of both the TV show and the book definitively something one way or the other uh, appeals to some people and does not appeal to some people. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, yeah. So, with that in mind, what has been what has been his response when people are like, "So they're gay, right?" If the question is asking him, so they're gay, right? What is he, What does he said to Yeah, that? He
1: does not say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> he never <laughs> says that. He's gone a couple of different ways. He says, quote, they're an angel and a demon, not male humans. Uh, and also, I like the idea that we know Crowley and Aziraphale don't really... These two are ethereal and occult beings who aren't really quite clear on what mammals are about, even. I don't really think they've sussed complicated human things like gender. So that's sort of the... They aren't humans they can't be gay sort of response which uh, i think fans of other supernatural sort of entertainments will be familiar with this as a uh, an answer on shipping questions which is a good and a bad thing in, in various respects but he also uh has responded in another way when asked this question of you know they're
0: gay right <laughs> yeah So the answer is not just, well, they don't have gender or genitals or whatever. So no, (laughs) the answer is the answer he gives is is more complicated. And I think thoughtful and in a lot of ways, the fact that he, this seems like a um, deliberate answer and not just a cop out when he talks about it. But what does he also added to that, um, that thought about them not being human? He says, he's been explicit about the fact
1: that the two of them are in love, uh, but he very adamantly has refused to give them specific labels. He says, quote, I wouldn't exclude the ideas that they are ace or aromantic or trans. They're an angel and a demon, not male humans, per the book. Occult ethereal beings don't have sexes, something we tried to reflect in the casting. Whatever Crowley and Aziraphale are, it's a love story. And then he also in a similar vein, talking about specifically the performance of Michael Crowley as Aziraphale, has I think said... I Michael Crowley as Aziraphale. Michael Crowley, Michael Sheen. <laughs> as Aziraphale. <laughs> he says, particularly <laughs> the way that Michael plays Aziraphale just as a being of pure love, I think that gave us something very special because people of every and any sexual orientation and any and every gender looked at Crowley and Aziraphale and saw themselves in it, or saw a love story that they responded to, and that was completely unexpected. Things like this you can't manufacture; they have to happen from
0: a fandom. So there's a
1: lot there in that quote that I think is interesting and worth responding
0: to. Yeah, um, and maybe we should we should actually just get right into how different people have responded to that because I think, like you said, there are other instances where people have been, oh, they're they're genderless, so I don't want to I don't want to say or. Um, You know, I think we can think about this, too, in terms of that insane J.J. Abrams quote from the Star Wars episode where he was like, it's it's deeper than than sex. It's it's the the Reforged in War. They can be (laughs) so innocent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, there are various versions of the, the answer to that question that are basically at their heart. I don't want to answer whether or not this is queer baiting, because I because I don't want to get into it. And it feels to right. me that that is not at all what Neil is doing. But that's not the case for everyone. So we've come across a couple of fairly, I think, representative um, medium posts from people who have responded in ways that reminded me of various responses I saw to these quotes. So on the one side, we have someone who. Is basically thinking that Neil saying they're an angel and a demon, not male humans, is the ultimate cop out queerbaiting answer. And because he won't specify or label them, he is like, you know, in everyone's face, queerbaiting to the max <laughs> a five mm-hmm. on our scale of <laughs> queerbaiting, um, just because of this specific quote. I, I think. Potentially because they've heard it from other people and seen it used that way before. Right. But then we also have on the other side of the spectrum, somebody who says the, the uh, title of the post and the gist is Good Omens is the asexual love story I've been waiting for. So someone who is seeing in these characters that are not specifically labeled a label that they identify with, which seemingly is what Neil Gaiman is going for by leaving it open to interpretation.
0: Right. And I think, yeah, the difficult thing is good omens does not exist in a vacuum where we have good representation, good um, distinct and well-defined representation of all these different identities. And so you can have representation for people who would prefer not to have labels as well, which I think is also a valid um, identity to have as someone who doesn't want a label or doesn't feel any of the existing labels are appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is also understandable, right. That in a, in a world where we don't have enough gay representation and are consistently hearing something similar, but in a way that is more dismissive um, it can be frustrating. I think what's also interesting about Neil Gaiman's approach, right, is that J.J. Abrams' quote was like, sex would cheapen this relationship. Right. And Neil doesn't seem to be saying that at all. He's not talking about sex at all. He's talking about, like, their gender. And it's interesting, too, because I don't know that the fans are being like, they should have a sex scene, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. They just wanted. They just want Neil to be like, yes, they're gay. Um, Or Or yes, yes, they're they're whatever. (laughs) Whatever. Just yes, there's something definitive. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about like why this feels different from, again, like that J.J. Abrams quote. Well, there's just to me, it's hard to pin down exactly why.
1: There just are all of these little markers that feel like a different situation to me than other situations. Part of it honestly is the words that Neil Gaiman uses right like it's interesting to see a creator say like well what if my characters are ace what if my characters are aromantic what if they're trans these are things that like as little representation as there is for gay characters on television or wherever there's basically none (laughs) for like asexual or aromantic characters to even have that brought up is interesting to me and you're right. It, this is leaving aside the idea of people who don't want to label themselves or are, you know, non-binary or whatever. And and that stuff that is basically never represented on television. And it's interesting to me that he specifically is like, I don't want to keep any of those people from seeing themselves in my work. I want anyone to be able to look at it and and identify with these characters, which is in my mind... Refreshing. (laughs) Different than um, someone who's just like, don't ask me if they're gay. I don't want to talk about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Definitely. I do agree with that. That J.J. Abrams quote, though. (laughs) It's a hard one to get over. (laughs) I can understand why people would be sensitized and sensitive to... Mm -hmm to that. But I, I, it does feel like this is a different instant. Also again, right, he is definitively telling us they are in love. Right.
1: That's another thing that makes this feel really different than a lot of other situations. In in the cases like the J.J. Abrams one, or other I don't want to just call out J.J. Abrams, um, when they're saying like, let's not cheapen it, that sort of thing, they're almost never saying yes, these characters are canonically in love, right? They're saying, like, you can see them however you want to see them, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about it. And that is definitively different to me than this is a love story, but their gender and their sexuality are up to interpretation because they're not humans, <laughs> right? And obviously we live in our world, and they've made the decision to cast to Male character, like two two male actors as these characters, that's its own decision, yeah. and it's you know an intentionally queer one, seemingly, because <laughs> if you're gonna be out here saying that these characters are in love and you want them to be read as heterosexual in some way, you're not gonna do it with David Tennant and Michael Sheen as the characters,
0: <laughs> right? Although it's it's interesting, and I'm glad this didn't become a permanent change. But when Aziraphale embodies, I forget what the woman's name is who he ends up embodying for a short time i forget the character's name yeah i think that actress is rita skeeter from harry potter but i don't awesome i don't don't know that actress's name either i was like where do i know her from um right crowley doesn't react differently to a xerophil in a female body no i think there's also right always the question of like I mean, this is this is kind of, a I think, a, a nonsense comment I'm about to make, but I'm going to make it anyway. Do it. Of, like, when Crowley and Nazir look at their embodied forms, is that what they're seeing, or can they see, like... I don't think that's a
1: nonsense question. I, that's a thing that I think about all the time when I'm watching stuff like this. You're watching, you know, other supernatural things, like, say, Supernatural <laughs> television right. show, or, like, Lucifer, or anything that is about Angel Stevens non-human characters that seemingly exist on another plane right in you in a lot of these shows they make mention of what they actually look like and then what they look like in their vessel because usually the human shaped Person that we're seeing is just a vessel that they are inhabiting, and really they look like something else. So it could very well be the case, and obviously we don't know in this, and Neil Gaiman would say it's not canon. <laughs> <laughs> we can't ask Neil Gaiman. Unless it's described in the book, <laughs> who knows? It might be. But yeah, it, that I think they might look like, you know. Whatever. People describe casts, I think it's supernatural as a celestial wavelength of intent, right? Like (laughs) who knows what they look like? They probably don't look like Michael Sheen. He could look exactly the same Azir Phil in Michael Sheen's body as he does in Skeeter's.
0: (laughs) Right. To Crowley. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I I think, right, stepping back our real world, it's good that Azir Phil didn't like switch to being a woman and then they got together, right? Like that would be (laughs) gross. But it's, I think maybe it's just additional evidence that like they could be gendered anyway, they could be in any bodies, and their relationship would be exactly the same. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they, they see each other. It's an interesting part of the show. Yeah. Um, to go back to this
1: medium post about how the show is queer bathing, I think... Most of it seems to be in response to that specific quote, that they're an angel and a demon, not male humans response. And then the extrapolation from that is what I've seen a lot of people who didn't respond positively (laughs) to Neil's um, quotes seemingly doing. And interestingly, in this post, they start to talk about authorial intent, right? Which is kind of what we're uh, tangentially what we're talking about here, where Neil Gaiman is saying himself... It doesn't matter what the authorial intent is. There's the words on the page or the words on the screen. And then there's everything else, which is speculation, no matter who is doing it. Me, you, anybody who has thoughts about it. It's not canon. It is capital letters, he says, making stuff up. (laughs) So uh, it's interesting that people are saying like, well, if Neil Gaiman says they're not gay, then that means they're not gay, right? When really, I don't think that's even what Neil Gaiman is saying, right? Is there ever a time when he says, no, they're not gay? (laughs) He just says, I don't want to (laughs) speculate. There's the canon, and then you can think of them however you want.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think this is also, right, a little interesting in terms of the conversation we had about Lord of the Rings of, like, we are constrained by our culture and the time we live in. And if you were transported to another time period, I think people underestimate how constrained they are by their own culture and how that shapes their like perception of the world um so yeah it's even harder to think about celestial (laughs) beings
1: and what that means for them it's also just refreshing to me to see a creator talk so much about fandom and fan works and fan contribution and how he welcomes it right he's saying like that's great, and exactly what I want you to be doing with my work, and it's exactly why I don't want to give you a definitive answer. Because if I give you an answer that you like, I've you know cut that path off for somebody who has a different interpretation, and it's just interesting. And I understand how it seems frustrating to people who want their definitive answer. Though, imagine if you got the wrong one. Yeah, <laughs> Neil sure. Gaiman is out here telling you you're right. Whatever you think, you're right.
0: Isn't that nice? He's asking you to have fun and keep the fights to a minimum. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Can we all just get along?
0: Quote Neil
1: Gaiman. Um, so I think there's just something fun about an, an author who says, let them be anything, let them be whatever you want.
0: Right. And I do think, right, while we're still in this space of a lack of representation there is something valuable to leaving this open to representation for even more underrepresented groups of of ace and arrow p- people, right? Yeah. Um, which is like, yes, across the board, not enough, not enough of anything, but mm-hmm. but let's very not take much this away not from enough these of people.
1: If we can. Yeah, if we can't <laughs> because please list for me the characters that you know of that are so. I mean, asexual. There's like one or two I can think of aromantic Mm -hmm. name for me a a character that is canonically aromantic that that's a word that they have said about themselves in the show i can think of zero
0: yeah i definitely no i i cannot i cannot name an example so it's it's nice to have um even if it's not definitive (laughs) the option to interpret these characters that way as well yeah um so, yeah, I think uh, I don't know if we have anything to say about sort of that the background information of what the what the creator say and, and these sort of two takes on uh, on uh, whether what the creator saying is good or bad. <laughs> um, or we want to now dive into the fan fiction that you did find. So, you know, there is- whatever. Yeah, let's, right you're film Crowley let's dip our toes into the fan fiction because there is a lot of it
1: <laughs> this show came out what summer of last year time has no meaning to me anymore it came out in 2019 <laughs> and okay. then we uh to consult AO3 as we always do and look at our list of ranking the ships in 2020 ineffable husbands are the ninth most popular ship on AO3 of 2020. They come out of nowhere. I think the list shows you how many spots something jumped up from the year before. And it jumped up like 50 spots (laughs) because there was only less than half of a year of, of um, writing in 2019. This ship sort of came out of nowhere with a bang. There are about 28,000 fan works on AO3 under
0: this tag. And obviously I have not, read all of it <laughs> but, but similarly to again Lord of the Rings which we discussed it's not like there could have been fan works about the book and there may be right but really taking off with our our visual media uh happening right
1: people like well, you know you see the actors and then all of a sudden you get ideas yeah <laughs> um so I, as is my tradition, went to the most kudosed um, fic for this ship, which is called "I'd Like for You and I to Go Romancing," from a Queen oh. song, appropriately, by Dolsom, and um, uh, to talk a little bit about the fic, it basically, and interestingly, or I guess unsurprisingly. Is about the nature of their relationship, <laughs> as uh, you would expect from the nature of this conversation. So it's and sort well, of we read about fan fiction, right? So it's well, character yes. focused. Just generally, emotional. it's character focused. But I mean, with these two, in the way that all of the discussion is about what are they, this fic is about what are we? <laughs> it's a it's the fic that starts with a zero fail. This is post show a zero fail realizing that everyone calls them a couple all the time and asking Crowley, Hey, are we a couple? Cause everyone says that we are. And at first Crowley's response is, you know, well, we're not human, so we can't be a couple in the human sense. And then they go through their experiences, continue to be, uh, misidentified or correctly identified as a couple throughout. And then by the end, of course, they've sort of come around to defining themselves that way. Uh, again very sweet i have found in most of these cases the number one fic is just sort of like a pleasant little diversion it's like not that long it's none of my number one fics so far have been like explicit (laughs) they've all just (laughs) been
0: uh sweet little
1: romances
0: uh which is very nice so by the end of it they define themselves as a couple do they do any does the fanfic define them as gay or ace or era or just like we're we're beings and we're a couple i not that
1: i recall it's really more about the their relationship status with each other and less about their personal identities in terms of sexuality or gender because i think they continue to see themselves as you know beings Beings. (laughs) exactly um but just because they're beings doesn't mean that they can't
0: be in a relationship with each
1: other We're definitely in love.
0: I only asked just to see, right, like where the most popular fan uh, fan fiction maybe shakes out again in this like, is it important that they be distinctly identified as gay or is it just important that we know that they're in love and they know that they're in love and they acknowledge it and they're like,
1: yeah, we're in love. It's great. Which, yeah, I found that to be as we always think about like does this fic somehow speak to the nature of the fandom or the nature of the ship and interestingly i think this one is pretty appropriate in its um setup for this conversation because as these medium writers and neil gaiman are having this conversation about the nature of their relationship so are the characters in the fiction right
0: yeah you know i know we um We've said early on, like we want to track the like what the most kudos fan fiction is against like what our perception of the the nature of the fandom is. But it's been interesting to see that it, there is this pattern of like the most kudos fan fiction is tends does tend to be these like very sweet, nice um, things. So it'll be interesting also to see if that just continues. And yeah, so it's might- less about what the fandom is and more just like. Everyone just wants to read a nice story. Yeah. Or at least the most people will like it, right? Yeah.
1: It's like the broadest sort of fic. Your broadest fic is never going to be some sort of specific kink or something. Like that's never going to be the right. most liked work.
0: Or something very deep, dark and angsty and like heavy. Yeah. Or like one of the main characters dies in it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll continue to keep tabs on that. But it's it's interesting to see the pattern that is developing. Um, one thing we also wanted to take a look at, thinking again about this as a conversation of asexual and aromantic representation, was I was like, oh, this is going to be a good uh, avenue to talk about asexuality in fan fiction and how it's represented. And there, of course, is asexuality in fan fiction, but it is impossible, seemingly impossible, again. <laughs> If, if you out in listener land, if anyone ends up listening to this, find yeah. this. Please, please send, send it. it to us. Um, I was trying to find like a survey of asexuality in fan fiction or something that was sort of like a holistic view of of like how many stories are written or what like percentage of the of fan fiction it takes up or just like anything beyond like yeah. – when you Google it, most of the things are like quora or Reddit things of people complaining about there not being a sexuality in tan. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know that we have too much more to say about that, other than it kind of speaks for itself of like, again, representation for ace and arrow people, and to just kind of like keep that in mind, I guess, as we continue to explore and, and search for things and try to understand what's drawing folks um, to this kind of work and, and whatever fan fiction we come across. Yeah. Uh, but I was disappointed. That is disappointing.
1: Apparently there is room for scholarship there. So anybody who's an aspiring academic, get into yeah. the
0: research. We do have right, the closest uh, thing I could find was all people's theses. Yes. So like they're doctoral programs which does not
1: excite of- me i feel like yeah. the next generation of academics will be thinking about this it's just not available to us yet can't get a hold of all these people's theses but yeah. to dip our toes into the scholarly uh literature pool anyway let's revisit our old pal jennifer barnes who writes about let's. fan fiction as
0: imaginary play what fan-written stories can tell us about the cognitive science of fiction. So, the things that we pulled out of that article um, for this episode are kind of similar to what we've been talking about of like fans wanting a definitive answer. Um, and so, for a portion of the article, she's talking about um, a parasocial relationships. So, people having these parasocial relationships with fictional characters that. Um, fulfill some uh, role in their lives um, and how that can create frustration right because like you know if you have a question about your friend you could just ask, ask them like them. yeah hey are you gay <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know, but when your like friend that. is a fictional character
1: the only person seemingly you could ask is the author but male Gaiman's not playing that game <laughs>
0: Right. He's saying, I also don't know, and we can't ask the character, so I guess we'll never know. So um, there's a a book that came out, which I would love to get a hold of as well, but, oh boy, it's an expensive textbook, and (laughs) I don't have the cash for that. So um, this book by Jenkins from 1992 talks about how – Quote, when one is highly invested in fictional characters, it can be upsetting to know that other individuals, namely the creators of the source material, wield total control over not just what happens to those characters, but who they become and the kind of person their in-text actions reveal them to be. Uh, and similarly, um, it is perhaps unsurprising then that the act of writing fan fiction has been characterized not only as a way to understand the characters one cares about, but also to assert some level of ownership over them. So, I guess it's also right, upsetting when the creators tell you that they also, that no one has control. No one will. Well, I think that's one way of viewing Neil's comments. I
1: think that you could also view this as a way of him saying, we all have the same amount of ownership, right? He's saying, take ownership of what your vision is, obviously, in a way that doesn't hurt all the other members of the fandom, because he's saying, like, let's not fight. But also right. he's saying to you, whatever you're writing is right for you. It's I'm not here to tell you that what you're writing is wrong. It's great. It's all great. It's exactly what you want it to be. So if you can wrap your head around that view of canon and fandom, I think it could be kind of a liberating way to think about it.
0: But yeah, just a, another, I think, interesting look at how fan fiction maybe functions for people. Um, and so, yes, writing it a certain way does allow you to assert to the world or to yourself that this is how things should be and this is how you're reading the text. But I think it's still interesting that folks really want that reassurance from the author, maybe even one way or another like maybe it even is still more comfortable to then be able to say like you're wrong as opposed to just it's all nebulous and I can't be right and you can't be right that's not comforting for right. anyone right that's just like your opinion, man yeah like no one fans likes would
1: that. fans would rather he be like they're straight I don't know why you think they're gay <laughs> so that right. they could argue with him that it's queer mating.
0: Yeah, but he's he's not giving them enough space to argue beyond, tell us. <laughs> yeah. Make a decision. <laughs> I need to be able to either push back or agree. I have to, like, define things. It's an uncomfortable place to be. But they're ineffable.
1: Exactly. To bring it back around, they're ineffable. How could he answer? There is no answer. Yeah.
0: So is that a good place to to get to our concluding question of... Let's do it. it I love the question. (laughs) Is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? It's queer canon, man. This is a clear cut
1: case of queer canon. The canon is the TV and the books. But if we're including Neil Gaiman here, uh, he says they're in love. They're in love. They're a celestial being and a celestial being or a male vessel and a male vessel whatever's going on with these two
0: they ain't straight <laughs> they're not straight they're not cis right they're it's it's definitely queer mm-hmm.
1: and that I, I queer relationship that. is all over the page presumably and definitely all over the show yeah
0: He he is at least telling us, right, that it is a love story. He was like, it's the means of a love story. Guys, it's a love story.
1: And what more do you need to know?
0: So our next question of if you gender swap the characters, would they be a couple? And I think like you could gender swap both of them, one of them, neither of them. Yeah. It wouldn't change anything because they are a couple. (laughs) (laughs) They are. And they're in love. And their vessel is unimportant. And again, we don't even know if they're seeing each other. Like, are they just seeing each other as colors? Who's to say?
1: What's funny, though, is in this case, if we only gender swap one of them, it would make it straighter.
0: It would. (laughs) And then I think people would not have all these questions. So it probably, you know, it's, it's probably from a storytelling perspective better for them to both be the same gender to us to open up the possibility of other identities whereas if you just had a man and a woman yeah i think people would just make assumptions and not even really get in
1: nobody's like what if this man and woman character couple is (laughs) (laughs) non-binary right yeah that's not something that people are bringing up
0: so our next question is, so why isn't canon? It is. Yeah. It is canon. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a nice way to end the podcast. It really is. And of course, we've made it clear why Neil will not say one way or the other if it's definitively XYZ. Right. So I don't think we need to rank it on a queer baiting scale. I don't feel baited. I know that person in that one Medium article did, but... I think they just, if they would just read more quotes from
1: Neil Gaiman, they would be comforted. I think yeah. if you only see the quote about how they're not humans, it's like going to give you flashbacks to people from every other, you know, piece of supernatural fiction telling you that as if it were an answer.
0: Mm-hmm. But in this case seems purposeful mm-hmm. and not just an escape. So this one was nice. So as much as I said uh, at the beginning that like, I didn't love Good Omens. I do like their relationship. I like their performances. It's a good ship, right? Games. You don't have to love Good yeah. Omens to like the ineffable husbands. It's, no, it's and again, um, I, I I really love Michael Sheen. He mm. well, we're going to get you to like Michael T- or David Tennant too. I love David Tennant. Yes. I don't. It's probably worth saying for uh, the listeners, listeners that I don't dislike David Tennant. I just haven't seen as much stuff that he has really been in so i just don't have as much of an opinion about him yep but michael sheen is in michael sheen is also in like a bunch of garbage that i love but he's like (laughs) so hammy in it like the twilight movies yes i always forget about him being in
1: those terrible late uh, (laughs) twilight movies as opposed to the great early twilight
0: (laughs) (laughs) movies (laughs) <laughs> and he's my favorite of Liz Lemon's paramours and Thirty Rock Wesley. How could Snipes. you choose? There are so many good paramours. There are a lot of good ones, but I, just the way he constantly tells her, "There's no other Wesley Snipes." <laughs> it's really delights <laughs> me. Hmm. So I love Michael Sheen. Yes, but uh, I guess enough about that. What are we talking about next week? It's gonna be an interesting one. Um, We're a getting contract. a
1: a surprisingly appropriate contrast to this one um we did not do this on purpose when we were setting up our order no but it's proving to be a great coincidence we're going to be talking about kind of harry potter the harry potter universe as much as this one was about neil gaiman and his thoughts i think the next one is going to be about jk rowling and her thoughts on authorial intent so what if people want
0: to get in touch with us
1: I hope they do. And they should email us at ltbkpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Tumblr at ltbkpod. New episodes of Let the Boys Kiss are released every other Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.